So Mark 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus had said what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all. Sorry. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But we shall say from man. They were afraid of, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Yeah, thank you, Amanda. Heather didn't list this as a reason why we're going to go to one service, but you guys clap so much more when there's like an army of you. 
It's like 50, you're like, we're not touching our hands together. But as soon as you put like 10 more people in the room, you're like, yeah, I can clap. Yeah, I feel supported. Well, it is good to have you. Um, would you pray with me one more time? And then we will talk about Jesus and stuff. God, thank you so much that you're here. Thank you that we believe that as we gather together in your name, around your table, you're present to us. And so today, as we continue to hear your word, as we gather at the table, as we sing your songs, as we enter into prayer, would you attune our hearts to your presence, to pay attention to you, to pay attention to you in the other, to pay attention to you in the story, to pay attention to the way you're speaking and moving and guiding and leading us. Jesus, help us pay attention to you and to align our lives with the movement of you in this world, to participate and submit to what it is you're doing here in us at this table and in the world around us. In your awesome and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Are there in this room any big, uh, like, C.S. Lewis or Narnia fans? <laughs> you nerds. <laughs> you just set me up so easy. I don't, you deserved that. I, to be, I'm a big C.S. Lewis, Narnia fan. I can make that joke because I am amongst the nerds. I am one of the nerds. So I can make that joke. But one of my favorite stories in all of C.S. Lewis' Narnia, it comes from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So it's one of his books in the Narnia series. If you haven't read it, it's take you like 14 minutes. It's written for children. It's, it's a great read, though. Uh, and it's, it's very episodic. So The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is a very episodic novel. And so you have King Caspian is going on these adventures, and he's trying to find these lords who are spread out throughout Narnia. So he's on these like different adventures throughout the Narnia world. And in chapter 4, he hears of this island that has fallen under the rule of a very cruel governor. And the governor is, is pictured in all of these different ways as cruel and is also uh, inefficient and is like bad at his job. He builds all of these policies into like the island that enrich himself, that add a bunch of bureaucracy intentionally so people can't meet with him, which I feel like really reveals C.S. Lewis's politics. He's like, bureaucracy. And then he also institutes slavery. And so he has all of these things that the governor is doing that are suppressing the island, that are making it difficult to live there, and the people are suffering under it. And Caspian hears of it. And he's like, well, we have to go. We have to go to the island. We have to liberate the people of the island. And so news throughout the island spreads that a king is coming, and it's this good news. And so Caspian shows up on the scene. His boat pulls up, because that's how boats work. They pull up. <laughs> He's riding low in his boat, pulls up, pops the door. I've been on a boat before. It's fine. We're a landlocked state. What do you expect of me? He pulls up in his boat, gets out of his boat. He puts his foot on the ground, and crowds begin to cheer because they were prepared for the news that King Caspian was coming. And so the crowds begin to cheer. News begins to spread. Trumpets begin to blow. And all of a sudden, like that energy begins to draw more people. They're like, well, who's this guy who rolled up in this low boat? 
And so as more news begins to spread, more people begin to spread. And King Caspian, he's like, comes in his best attire. He has like military garb on, his like, his, his retinue, his clique has like military attire on, plate mail. And they begin to march through the city. And as they do, the procession continues to grow. So more and more people begin to surround Caspian. And I, and I love the way that Lewis talks about it. He's like, at first it was those who were prepared. And then it was children just because they like loud noises. And then it was like school children because they were like, well, maybe if there's a big enough commotion, we don't have to go to school. And then it was women, and then it was men, and eventually the crowd is so overwhelming. And Lewis writes, they were cheering because it was a king. And what is a governor compared with that? So he keeps marching all the way up to the governor's palace until this overwhelming procession makes it to the palace doors. And by the time they get there, the message is totally clear. There is new management of the lonely island. The rule of the governor, the reign of the governor, the incompetent policies of the governor, they are over because the king has arrived. And his people know it. Now, I love that story, one, just because it's a cool story, but also because it is what's happening in Mark chapter 11. The beginning of Mark chapter 11, you have this story of Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And very similar to King Caspian, it's not a military entrance. There's no violence to his entrance. There's no conquering to his entrance. He instead rides into Jerusalem and the crowds begin to gather around him, cheering and celebrating and welcoming him. News that he is arriving has spread all throughout Jerusalem, and so they are waiting to meet him there and cheer him and celebrate him. But unlike Caspian's entrance, Jesus' entrance is a kind of planned humility. He doesn't come in his best armor. He doesn't have any armor. He doesn't come dressed to the ninth. He doesn't come with his, like, like hit his click. He just rolls in with his crew in total humility. But like Caspian, the intention of this procession is clear. There is a change of management arriving in Jerusalem. Jesus is entering into Jerusalem as king over and against every other false political claim or governor. And the crowd around him, they know it. That's why they all begin to sing Hosanna, which means basically save us now. Not like later, not in some future time. It's like, save us now. There's this new political revolution that has arrived on the scene. It is unexpected. It is unlike anything we've ever seen before. But it is for surely a political revolution. That is the message of Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem. And the people around him know it. The powerful who hear it know it. So Jesus enters in. But then he does this thing that is very different than what Caspian does or maybe what you would expect from a political revolution. He doesn't show up to Pilate's house, who is the actual governor of Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Herod's home, who is this like Jewish king who's been installed by Rome as sort of a puppet leader. He doesn't go there. He doesn't go to Pilate. He doesn't go to the palaces or the parliament or the government officials. Instead, he shows up at the temple which is sort of like showing up to his own palace. 
So instead of going to the political leaders' homes, he shows up basically to his own home. And the question is, why? Well, why does that where Jesus goes? Why does he go to his own palace if he's king usurping the powers of the world around him, staging a coup? Why does he show up at his own home? And it's obviously not because Pilate and Herod are not in his purview. Jesus, throughout Mark, has confronted Pilate and Herod. Throughout Mark, he has confronted political powers and religious powers and cultural powers and cultural hierarchies. Just last week, we look at him confronting all of those things. So it's not that those things aren't in his purview, that they're not important to him. They obviously are. But instead of going there first, Jesus is focused on something else. And what we see in Mark 11 is that, yes, Jesus is overturning everything, the world over. But it begins with the things that we hold most dear. It begins with how we see him. It begins with our religion. It begins with our faith. And then it begins to emanate from that space. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as we're reading Mark chapter 11, and Jesus is overturning and upending all of these things, is, well, what do we do about that? Because as Jesus rose and rides into Jerusalem, that's the question that everybody in that moment is having to ask. What do we do about this coup that's being thrown, that's peaceful, that's nonviolent, but is upending everything we understand about the world? Do we participate in that movement? Or do we stand aside and refuse it? Do we participate? Do we align our lives with it? Or do we actually act as an obstacle to it? So what do we do with the movement of Jesus? And this is the question that we see in Mark chapter 11. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He has his triumphal entry. He goes and he looks at the temple. But here's the thing that Mark does, which I think is really great, is he shows Jesus entering into the temple, but he doesn't do anything yet which is for sure a foreshadowing moment. Like, if you're writing a story, this is a great way to build tension. He has all of these crowds riding with him, sees the temple, and he's like, I'll see you tomorrow. And then he leaves. He leaves Jerusalem, goes to Bethany, and then the next day it says Jesus comes back into Jerusalem. And as he's heading back into Jerusalem to do deal with the temple, there's this new story that's put into the mix that Mark is like, okay, before you even get to what Jesus is doing here, you actually have to see this. And as he's heading in from Bethany, he passes a fig tree. It has no figs on it, which it shouldn't have any figs on it because it's not in season. So we get this like very normal moment. Jesus is walking, sees a fig tree, it has no fruit on it because it's not in season normal. But then Jesus' response is not normal, and so we have to pay attention to what it means because Jesus sees that there's no figs on it and says, may no one ever eat from you again. And you're like, well, what? What is happening in that moment? Why is Mark including this story? What does this have to do with this revolution that Jesus is throwing? Well, it has to do with how we understand figs throughout the Old Testament because they're a metaphor for something. Oftentimes, if you're reading the Old Testament, figs are a description of goodness or wealth or prosperity. So if you're reading Moses, Moses promised the wandering Israelites that they would enter into a land of figs. If you've never seen a fig, there are some on the table, just like positioned around. 
promise a land of figs, like a land of milk and honey. Figs are connected to that. Sometimes the prophets would talk about like sitting under your own fig tree is like a sign of contentment. Like if you, had, you could sit under the shade of your fig tree, you could eat of the figs, that would be a sign of contentment. But one of the most common images for a fig is actually the people of Israel themselves. Prophets love to use vine language to describe who Israel is, how they're connected to one another, how they're connected to God, how they're doing. And one of the most common images comes out of Jeremiah chapter 8. This is the prophet is writing on behalf of God, and it says, When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes in the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So you have this image, right? Like there's these figs, the people of Israel compared to a tree, and it's like, God's like, I approached them, I wanted to gather them together, and yet when I got to them, there was no fruit on the tree. Why are there no fruits on the tree? Why are there no figs growing? The prophet Jeremiah answers that right before. He says, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From, and this is important, from prophet to priest. Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So Jesus is going to the temple to do something. We don't know exactly what he's going to do, but he's going to go to the temple and he's going to do something. And on his journey towards the temple, he sees a fig tree. And the cultural illusion of a fig tree is that it is a metaphor for the people of Israel in health or in sickness. In health, they should be producing fruit, and that fruit would be kindness, generosity, care for the poor. It would be a religious system that actually works for its people, that heals the wounds of people, that cares for people, that welcomes them to the table. That would be evidence of fruit that's consistent throughout the Old Testament. It's like the people of Israel are healthy when they're caring for the poor, when they're including outsiders, when they're kind to widows and orphans. So that's the fruit, and not fruit, is religious leaders acting unjustly, greedy, not caring. So that's the cultural illusion. So Jesus is heading towards the temple. He sees a fig tree, and it has no figs. Mark is trying to hint at us that something big is about to happen because something is very problematic with the religion of Israel, which is the exact next moment. Jesus sees the fig tree names that something is empty and broken, and then he enters in to the temple, and what does he find? Oh, a barren tree. The text says, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple, and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Such a weird thing to tell in the temple. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, It is not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. We often make this moment about like that there's like small-scale commerce happening in the temple. And that is somewhat problematic, sure. But like, if you need a pigeon, you got to buy it somewhere. So it's not that big of a deal. Right, the big thing that Jesus is naming is what's happening in Jeremiah, which is that the temple has systematically become a place of greedy gain and, as opposed to care. 
It has, at its very roots, become a place of harassment, of exclusion, of exploitation, and not a place of extending grace into the community. It has lost its purpose, and it has become a barren and empty fig tree. That phrase, den of thieves, actually comes from the very same section of Jeremiah where the fig tree passage is. The issue is a place of unjust gain systemically. The temple, the religious institution, the center of Jewish life has lost its work, its true practice of care, and it has become empty. The biblical writer James, I think, actually summarizes what's happening really easy. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained. Verse 16, right before this says, religion that doesn't do that is literally worthless. It's worthless. Jesus is naming the same thing. The temple has become worthless. And the religion at the center of the Jewish life has become worthless because it has forgotten its purpose. It's to care and heal wounds. And now all we have is belief without practice. And so we have an empty and barren tree, a worthless religion. And it does not lead to life. And so therefore, it has to be upended. So Jesus leaves the temple. He throws these tables. He names that this place has become empty and barren and useless. It's not doing the thing that it was called to do. So he leaves the temple, heads back to the same place that he was before, and then as he's returning, the next day, he passes the same fig tree. Peter sees it, withered, and I I love this moment from Peter. Peter sees it, that it's withered, and he's like, Jesus, look, the tree that you cursed yesterday, it's withered, and everybody around him is like, yeah, it's like not hard to remember, this is a big deal. He sees this withered tree, and then how does Jesus respond to that? When they say, you see this withered tree, Jesus responds, have faith in God. So Jesus is doing is he's just naming the opposite of what's happening in the temple. The temple is a place of empty religion. He's saying instead of that, instead of being a people of empty religion, of belief minus practice, be a people of faith, belief and practice. The writer James goes on to articulate this right after what he names religion to be. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you say to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, by faith, Also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's saying is that faith cannot exist without practice. Faith cannot exist without practice. And and oftentimes this moment becomes a conversation about can you be saved without works, which I actually think is missing the point. The conversation is that your faith will die if it is not grounded in the work of love. It'll just die. 
If our faith is not grounded in the actual practice of caring for the poor, of actually loving, of actually extending forgiveness, of actually doing the things that Jesus calls us into, he's like, no, your faith will wither and die like the temple or like the fig tree. Faith is not a set of beliefs. It is a set of practices, a way of us aligning our lives with the movement of God and saying we're going to participate in the thing that God is doing in the world. So what James is naming, what Jesus is naming, what the prophets are naming is that if you try to separate practice from faith, you will kill your own faith. You cannot just hold arbitrarily or abstractly or in theory a set of beliefs about God and call it like faith. That'll wither. Faith is participation in the way of God. The image here is if a fig tree is not producing figs, it withers and dies. The Bible loves to use that language of fruit. So, so many places, like if you think about the really famous moment in Galatians, chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. But one of the problems with that moment is that we often take that language and we make it abstract like virtues of character. Which is like the fruit of the Spirit is that you abstractly become more loving. But what it's saying is the fruit of the Spirit is actually that you would love, that you would do the practice of love. Not that you would abstractly become more loving, but that you would love. And it's not that you would abstractly become more patient, but that you would do the work of patience. But the fruit of the Spirit are actually the practices of faith. Which is why right in that moment, it actually says that you would live in step with the Spirit of God. That's how that passage about faith fruit is introduced, that you would live in step with the Spirit of God, that your life would be a movement, a participation in the way of God, practicing, learning, growing in love. And in that way, when we practice faith, we are tending to our faith. Loving others tends to our faith. Caring for the poor tends to our faith. Prayer tends to to our faith. Our faith is only tended when our hands are dirty in the real work of love. That's how you cultivate faith. That's how you keep faith alive. Otherwise, we kill our own faith. And so Jesus says, have faith in God. Join in the movement of God. Align your life with the way of God. So what does that mean in this moment? So how do we submit ourselves and participate in his way in this moment? Well, he goes on to make this like really crazy claim. He says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you and your trespasses. Again, I think this is one of those passages that we have done some weird things to. Because we have made this moment that, like, if you believe, you can do anything. But if faith is about participating in the way of God, I think that actually begins to change how we see this passage. Instead of it being, if you believe, you can do anything, it is in faith we get to join what God is doing. And in this moment, what is God doing? 
oh, he's overthrowing something. Because what mountain is Jesus talking about? Oh, the mountain the temple is built on. The thing the whole passage has been about. He's not just talking about any arbitrary mountain. He's talking about the one that like, this whole story is about. He's like, hey, if you have faith in God, if you align your life with the movement of God, you actually get to join him and participate in the overthrowing of dead religion. And that is actually significantly more than saying we toss a mountain into the sea. It's saying what happens when you align your life with the movement of God? Oh, you get to join in the thing that God is doing, which is why the very next example in the story, which is when you stand praying, forgive, because what is God doing in this world? Oh, he's extending grace into the world. And if you don't participate in the movement of God through prayer, well, you're actually an obstacle to prayer. So faith is extending forgiveness in your prayers. It's joining the movement of God. So here, it's overthrowing this mountain. Here, it's extending forgiveness. have faith in God, it means to participate in the movement of God, to align your life with the movement of God, and to join the things that God is doing in the world around you. Faith is participating and aligning your life in submission to the movement of God in the world. This is the whole kind of like narrative structure of Mark chapter 11. Jesus enters into Jerusalem declaring himself king, And the world around him has to decide, will we participate in the movement that you're bringing or will we stand in opposition to it? That's the conversation about faith. Will we join in the thing that you're unfolding in the world around us or will we stand in opposition to it? Will we join the movement of God with our lives? even when Jesus is taking aim at the things that seem most central to our lives. Because in this moment, the thing he's taking aim at is central to Jewish life, his temple. The thing that he gave to the people of Israel. A gift that he extended to them and said, like, hey, through this you're going to be distinct, and through this you'll know me, and through this you'll have special relationship to me. And that's actually the thing that he's taking aim at, a thing that he gave to them that has become empty and dead. And so that question is one that we all have to wrestle with. What do we do when the things that need to be overturned in our own life feel so significant? Like that they at one moment produced life, or at one moment produced hope, or at one moment gave joy, but have actually become dead, but we hold on to them because they feel so significant and important and substantial and Jesus is trying to overturn them, do we let him? Do we align our lives with the overturning and upending movement of God, even when it is things central to us? Do we participate in his work, even when it is something we hold dear? Or do we stand as an obstacle? This is how Mark chapter 11 ends. Jesus is challenging this thing so central to the Jewish community. In the last section of Mark, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they're like, you don't have authority to do this. Like you don't, 
who gave you this? Like, you don't have the authority to do this. And this is the first of three moments that the Pharisees will begin to question Jesus' authority throughout the end of Mark. Because he'll continue to challenge these things that are so central to how they understand their own faith and their own story and their own identity. And he will challenge them and their response will consistently be, well, you don't have authority. We actually choose the governor over the king. You don't have authority to do this. And it makes sense. They have invested so much into the temple. So much into this way of life. It is their, it is their profession. Their identity is made up in it. Their pedigree is made up in it. And so as they kind of evaluate what it is that Jesus is overturning, they say, no, Jesus, you do not have authority to do this. We will not align our lives with your movement. And so like the Pharisees, that's the question that we have to ask. Is Jesus is entering into the world as king. But are we willing or interested in aligning our lives with the reign of Jesus in the world, in our own personal spaces? Or like the Pharisees, are we going to say, you do not have authority here? The thing is, Jesus will always let us answer that question how we will. Always will let us answer that question how we will. So who gets to have authority? Whose reign do you align yourself with? What way do you participate in? It could be like the Pharisees. whose religion is empty and worthless. Or we can ex- receive the invitation that Jesus is giving us to align our lives with the movement of him in his world-upending kingdom. Let me see what's right. Jesus, thank you that you're here. Thank you that you are always extending an invitation to your people to know you, to experience you, and to participate in the way of you. That invitation just never ends. So today, no matter who we are or where we come from, would we see the good news of you the way you're upending things that are dead in our lives and in the world around us to make space for your kingdom of grace and love and kindness and mercy. We know what it means to participate, to align ourselves with the movement of you, to do the practices of faith. And not simply invest in things that are dead. God, in your name we pray. Amen.